Please pray with me. Lord God of hosts, Sovereign King, how we praise your glorious name. You are truth. You are grace. You love us unconditionally and extravagantly. Thank you, God, for your unchanging word and for your all-sufficient gospel of grace. Father, I pray right now that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to hear all that you have to teach us through this passage of Galatians. Remove all distractions. Lay low every hindrance. And Holy Spirit, illumine your truth. Use me as your servant to teach your word with accuracy. I pray that you would fill all of me with all of you. This I ask in the name of our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Are you prepared for battle? Are you ready to engage the enemy? How equipped are you to fight for freedom? As Americans, we hear the word freedom and we think of political freedom. Our country was founded on the freedom of we the people from British oppressors. But Christians are called to fight for their freedom in Christ. The Apostle Paul fought for this freedom. To that end, he defended the gospel of Jesus Christ to keep it pure, untainted by false teaching. Several commentators call him a freedom fighter. But when you Google the words freedom fighters, you find the following definitions. One engaged in a resistance movement against what they believe to be an oppressive and illegitimate government. A revolutionary, an insurgent, a rebel or insurrectionist. A freedom fighter is anyone who challenges existing political order and fights for his own freedom and the freedom of his people. So putting all politics aside, Paul was indeed a freedom fighter a gospel freedom fighter. The freedom he fought to protect was the freedom that Christ purchased for every believer at the cross. Freedom from the penalty, power, and ultimately, the very presence of sin. This is what the gospel proclaims, is ours as a gift of God's grace. Christians are liberated in Christ. Yet throughout history, many false teachings have challenged this truth. One of the most powerful false teachings is good works, a doctrine which teaches Christ plus. Such false teachers say that we are saved from our sin by trusting in Christ's work on the cross plus scrupulous obedience to religious rules and regulations, or plus doing good works for God, or plus anything. Behind the book of Galatians is Paul's desire to defend and declare the true gospel. Paul enters the fight, and he is well prepared for battle. He writes Galatians as a defense of the true gospel against the strong proponents of a false gospel. Paul not only teaches us, 
but demonstrates that Christians are called to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the truth that we will unpack in our two divisions, Paul's acceptance and pillar approved. So our first division is Paul's acceptance, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you'll open your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, the book of Acts records four different times that Paul visited Jerusalem after his conversion. Which of the four visits is this visit? Well, scholars do not agree. For his first visit, which is recorded in Acts chapter 9, verses 26, we see that visit's referred to uh, in Galatians 1.18. We talked about that last time we were in Galatians. It occurred shortly after his conversion, and it was in this brief visit that he saw only Cephas, or Peter, and Jesus' brother James. The second visit is described in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. On this visit, Paul and Barnabas brought a gift from the Antioch church for famine relief in Jerusalem. The third visit, recorded in Acts chapter 15, is Paul's most famous visit to Jerusalem. He went with Barnabas and others for what is known as the Jerusalem Council. It was there that all of the apostles agreed that Gentile converts to the Christian faith were not required to become Jews first by being circumcised. They agreed that this and nothing else should ever be added to the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All else is excluded. The fourth visit is discussed at length in Acts chapters 21 through 28. During this visit, Paul was arrested and sent to Rome. In view of this, both the first and fourth visits to Jerusalem can be ruled out as the one that Paul refers to here. Scholars agree on this. However, they are split between whether it was Paul's second or third visit referred to here. Many scholars say that um, the visit that Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 2 is the third visit, which includes the Jerusalem Council. But others say that too many details do not fit the third visit, one being that Paul's journey to Jerusalem was in response to divine revelation, not the invitation of the apostles, as it says in Acts 15. They instead believed that Paul was speaking of his second visit to Jerusalem. Paul says that this visit was after 14 years. This probably means 14 years after his conversion, which would mean it was 11 years after his first visit to Jerusalem. Verse 1 says that both Barnabas, who was a Jew, and Titus, a Gentile, joined him. Why did he go? Verse 2. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul was not summoned to Jerusalem by the apostles. 
like he was in Acts 15. He went in response to divine revelation. He first spoke privately with the Jerusalem apostles about the gospel that he preached or proclaimed to the Gentiles. When he says, in order to make sure that I, ha I was not running or had not run in vain, it does not mean that Paul had any doubt or questions about the gospel that he preached. Remember, he had received his gospel directly from Jesus Christ, who is the truth with a capital T. There is only one Christ, one truth, one gospel that Paul proclaimed. However, Paul knew that if the Jerusalem apostles declared that the gospel he preached was untrue, all of his efforts would be nullified. He wanted the gospel to flourish. Practically, the approval of the Jerusalem church would help. When this particular meeting ended, the gospel of grace that Paul preached to the Gentiles was accepted by the apostles. This happens in both Paul's second and third visits to Jerusalem. At the end of the third visit, the Jerusalem council settled the question about the Gentiles once and for all. It ended with an official decree being issued about the status of Gentiles in the Christian church. Paul makes no mention of this decree in Galatians chapter 2. Such a decree would certainly have stopped the Judaizers from claiming that Jerusalem was on their side. This points to the probability that Galatians 2 refers to Paul's second trip to Jerusalem. Again, the questions about the timeline of Paul's travels cannot be determined with absolute certainty. Yet this does not affect how we understand Galatians chapter 2. What is important is that ultimately Paul, the freedom fighter, won his fight for the freedom that is ours in Christ. Philip Graham Ryken says that Paul teaches us that the price of spiritual freedom is constant vigilance. It is not enough to share the gospel or even preach it. The gospel has to be defended. Christians are called to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's travel companion and beloved co-worker Titus accompanied him as Exhibit A in the defense of the gospel's purity. For Paul to take Titus to Jerusalem was a daring move. To bring an uncircumcised Gentile Christian into the holy city would certainly enrage the Judaizers. But, verse 3, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, when Paul refers to Titus as a Greek, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was ethnically Greek. It simply means that he was a Gentile, not a Jew. The bigger point is that he was not forced to be circumcised. Why does Paul include this disclaimer about Titus? This is the first time in Galatians that Paul specifically mentions circumcision. Circumcision was of the utmost importance to the Jews. It was a sacred mark of Jewish identity. 
In the days of Abraham, God commanded the removal of the male foreskin as a visible sign of the covenant. Jewish males were and still are circumcised on the eighth day after birth as a sign of belonging to God's people. If a Gentile decided to become a Jew, the law required that he be circumcised. But Titus, a Gentile who had become a Christian, was not circumcised. And the leaders in Jerusalem, after their private meeting with Paul, did not require Titus to be circumcised. In verse 4, Paul again enters the fight for freedom, saying, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. The false brothers, these false teachers, they were the Judaizers, insidious infiltrators who came into the church for the sole purpose of spying on Paul and his church. In Paul's view, these false brothers were still in bondage. Prisoners who came to spy on this freedom that Paul proclaimed is found in Christ. But their goal was not to be free. Their goal was to drag the free back into bondage. Martin Luther once wrote that the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the, ma the mind of man was the idea that somehow he could make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. Every time Paul speaks of our freedom in Christ, he is referring to freedom from the law. Specifically, the bondage of requiring circumcision and obedience to the law for salvation from sin. Those who live under the law are enslaved to it. They will never be able to obey it perfectly as God requires. The law points us to our great, great need for Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ live in light of the reality that God has fulfilled his promise to save his people. He sent Jesus Christ to fulfill the law by living a life in perfect obedience to every jot and tittle of the law. Commentator Thomas Schreiner writes, requiring the law for salvation does not free people from sin, but places them under the reign of sin. Reverting to the law is a yoke of slavery because human beings cannot keep the demands of the law. Hence, they groan under the law's demands, which they cannot fulfill. With the freedom and liberty of the gospel at stake, Paul stands firm to preserve the truth of the gospel. Verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The false brothers, they could not and would not gain any traction with Paul. He rejected their teaching outright. He resisted the pressure to circumcise Titus 
to preserve the truth about God's grace in the gospel. He would not consider, even for a moment, trading in the liberty he found in Christ for the bondage of the law he once so passionately defended. He recognized their gospel as false, and he utterly denounced it as false. Requiring obedience to the law for salvation, it nullifies God's grace. The gospel that Paul proclaimed was the true gospel of grace. He preached that God's grace provides salvation as a work of God alone, given to sinful man as a gift of grace because he cannot ever do enough to satisfy the requirements of a holy God. Grace brings freedom because it does not depend on human beings for righteousness. Grace is God's favor to the utterly undeserving and it is something that we cannot earn. If we could earn it, it would not be grace. Grace frees us from depending on what we do as a basis of salvation. Instead, we look to Christ alone and the gracious gift of his redeeming work on the cross. This gospel, the gospel of grace, is the true gospel that you and I are called to defend. Our first truth is that Christians defend the gospel by speaking the truth about God's grace. How prepared are you to defend the doctrine of God's grace? How many scriptures about grace are written on your heart? If you cannot answer that question, the scripture verses provided in this week's lesson are a great place to start. Verses like Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Or Titus 3 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In light of these scriptures, ask yourself, where am I trading in God's grace for my own work in order to gain God's salvation, blessing, or acceptance? Scottish poet Horatius Bonar invites us to rest in God's grace, saying, Grace burst forth spontaneously from the bosom of eternal love and rested not till it had removed every impediment and found its way up to the sinner's side, swelling round him in full flow. It does away with the distance between the sinner and God, which sin had created. It meets the sinner on the spot where he stands. Grace approaches him just as he is. Grace does not wait until there is something to attract it, nor till there is some good reason in the sinner for its flowing to him. It was grace when it first thought of the sinner. It was grace when it found and laid hold of him. 
and it is grace when it hands him up to glory. Paul rested in God's grace and he would not stand for the false teaching of earning our salvation in any way. And the pillars of faith in Jerusalem agreed with him. In our next division, he receives their approval. Our second division is pillars approval. Galatians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, Paul sees the men in Jerusalem, the apostles who walked with and, and were taught by Jesus as influential. Later on in verse 9, he calls them pillars, meaning that God used them as the foundation for his church. Ephesians 2.20 says that the people of God, the church, was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Of the pillars, Paul says that they seem to be influential. What an understatement. But Paul meant that their level of influence did not make much difference to him. While he respected their authority, the stature of the apostles in Jerusalem did not matter to Paul and his ministry. He knew that God is not moved by the status of humans. He says God shows no partiality. This is so true. We often in this culture elevate certain Christian preachers, teachers, authors, or speakers. There are Christian celebrities, which is actually an oxymoron. When God sees us, he sees us all as sinners saved by grace. Not one is better than the other. No gift or talent is greater than the other. The humble servant who sets up the tables and chairs is just as important in the body of Christ as the eloquent pastor who preaches the sermon each Sunday or the best-selling author of the latest Christian book. Paul was not starry-eyed or dazzled by the leaders in Jerusalem. This supports Paul's claim in Galatians 1.10 that he and his ministry were not motivated by a desire to please people. Influential or not, Paul says that the leaders in Jerusalem added nothing to him. That is, they did not add to the gospel of grace that Paul preached. In fact, they approved of the purity of Paul's gospel, agreeing that he, in fact, preached the one true gospel. This approval meant that the Judaizers were profoundly mistaken in the gospel they preached. While Paul did not need their approval, the pillars of faith offered a powerful rebuttal to the false teachers in Galatia. Then, Paul says they went a step further. In verse 7, it says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. You see, the early church had two different audiences. 
the Jews and the Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. But Paul maintains that there is still one church. In Romans 1.16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, grace and truth comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us. The first century believers were not as diversified as the church is today. The Christians converted when Jesus walked this earth and the ones converted by Jesus' original 12 apostles were mostly so-called Jewish Christians. But non-Jews were increasingly being converted. Paul uses the word entrusted to refer to the fact that God had given him his ministry and he had given the Jerusalem apostles their ministry. His point is that the leaders in Jerusalem did not establish his authority. They did not establish his ministry. Instead, they saw God had entrusted Paul with his ministry to the Gentiles. They recognized God's divine handprint. The phrase gospel to the uncircumcised states that the audience for the gospel that Paul proclaimed were Gentiles. No circumcision required. The gospel applies equally to the uncircumcised and the circumcised. Two different cultures were addressed and one gospel was proclaimed. Paul makes this abundantly clear by saying that God had also entrusted Peter with the gospel to the circumcised. Peter preached the same exact gospel that Paul did. There is only one true gospel that Christians are called to defend, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to note that verse 8 is in parentheses. Paul makes a side note to support the claim in verse 7 that both he and Peter were entrusted by God with the same gospel. He says, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also in me for mine to the Gentiles. The pronoun he refers to God. God worked through both Peter and Paul, equipping them to serve in their respective ministries. Verse 9, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Not only did the leaders in Jerusalem see that God had entrusted Paul with the gospel, they also perceived that God's grace permeated Paul's ministry. These pillars of faith, they knew grace when they saw it. They knew Paul before he was saved. They knew how scrupulously he once followed the law of Moses and how passionately he once persecuted the first Christians in defense of God's law. 
Only God's grace could transform such a man. Only God's grace could make such a sinner, such a servant. And only God's grace could produce the fruit they saw in Paul's ministry. The pillars acknowledged the power of God's grace at work in Paul's life by extending to him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. This meant that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was pillar approved. The gospel Paul proclaimed and defended was the one true and valid gospel. Again, Paul reiterates the two spheres of ministry God had given to him and to the pillars. Paul to the Gentiles and the Jerusalem apostles to the Jews. However, these two spheres were not rigid or exclusive. If a city that Paul visited had a synagogue, it was the first place he went upon arrival. He would proclaim the gospel to his fellow and beloved Jews first and then go to the Gentiles. By the same token, the Jerusalem apostles certainly were free to preach the gospel to any Gentiles who crossed their paths. This passage ends with Paul's response to a plea from the Jerusalem apostles. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The Jewish Christians were suffering from a famine. This fits um, what is said in Acts 11, that Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to deliver money collected for poor Jewish Christians. The Jewish people in Jerusalem were Paul's people. He delighted in every Jew who was now a Christ follower. Paul loved the Jewish Christians. His heart was filled with great compassion for them. When they suffered, he suffered. He had already been collecting money to deliver to these suffering Jewish Christians. The financial support collected from the churches in Galatia not only ministered to the poor, it served to foster unity between both the Jews and the Gentiles, that unity that they shared in Christ. For Paul, defending the gospel meant much more uh, than just speaking words. While works are excluded in salvation, they are definitely included in the life of every Christian. Wholehearted service to God by ministering to the least, the last, and the lost visibly, it proclaims the gospel. Our second truth is that Christians defend the gospel by wholeheartedly serving wherever God calls. To what area of ministry or arena of service has God called you? How does this service defend or proclaim the gospel? In what ways could you change how you serve God to defend the truth of the gospel more intentionally? God calls every single believer to a place of service. No exceptions. We exist 
to proclaim his glory and enjoy him forever. Applied to our daily lives, we glorify God when we serve him, acknowledge him, obey his will, recognize his gifts, understand his greatness, and respond with worshipful reverence and thankfulness. So when we serve others in love, we glorify God. But maybe you're thinking, I'm too old, I'm too sick, I'm too tired, I'm too fill in the blank. If that's what you're thinking, let me remind you of two important truths. Service is God's call on your life. He made you and he redeemed you. You are his. Second, the Holy Spirit equips us to serve God. The weaker we are, the more our service glorifies God. Choose to start where every freedom fighter must start. On your knees. Pray. Ask God to show you your place in the battle. Christians defend the gospel by wholeheartedly serving wherever God calls. Are you prepared for battle? Ready to engage the enemy? How equipped are you to fight for the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ? By the grace of God, Paul won his fight for gospel freedom and Gentiles were accepted in the early church without submitting to Jewish law. In fact, by the second century, circumcision had been abolished everywhere in the church. Yet the church still needs freedom fighters because the fight for freedom in Christ will not end until Christ returns to make us free forever. Christians are called to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to keep it pure, untainted by false teaching to the glory of God. I like what blogger Eric Raymond writes. He said, when folks add to or subtract from the gospel, they undermine the agenda of God in getting pure glory for Jesus. To array the cross with religious works is to smudge its glory, insulting and devaluing the perfect work of the perfect Savior. The gospel is the primary means by which Jesus is exalted. When we understand that no one may improve upon its perfection, we would agree that in terms of the gospel, Addition equals subtraction. So therefore, in an effort to keep in step with God in ascribing glory to Jesus, let us know the gospel, love the gospel, and hold fast with white knuckles to the gospel. For it is in the gospel that God exalts the Savior. Hit your knees freedom fighters. Prepare for the battle and enter the fight. Christians, all of them, are called to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. The works of your hands, O Lord, are truth and justice. 
All your precepts are trustworthy. They stand firm forever and ever, done in faithfulness and uprightness. You sent redemption to your people. You have ordained your covenant forever. Holy and awesome is your name. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would help us defend the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that our every thought, word, and deed would ooze with your amazing grace and it would make your gospel so very attractive. Oh, Father, to this end, may your good spirit lead us on level ground, now and forever. This I pray in the name of the one who is truth, Jesus Christ. Amen.